This is Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition. As our readers likely know, since the launch of Tradition Online in the summer of 2019, we've published a weekly feature called The Best. In that column, we've asked a wide variety of writers to consider what things out there in the big wide world make them think and feel. What elements in general culture potentially inspire us to live better? We have sought to share these insights on cultural objects, both high and low, that might still be described as the best that has been thought and said, in Matthew Arnold's phrase. The types of art, literature, film, you name it, that can serve as an antidote to the anarchy of materialism, industrialism, individualistic self-interest, and some aspects of modernity. So far, The Best has produced almost 150 entries on everything from Dante, Milton, Shakespeare, Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson, John Locke and John Stuart Mills, the speeches of Lincoln and Dr. King, and reaching all the way over to the music of Johnny Cash and Joni Mitchell, Star Trek and Star Wars, even Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. The full archive of these essays and so much more can be found at traditiononline.org slash the best. But, we inform our listeners, the best will be going on recess for a period. It will return, and keep your eyes on our website for news of the exciting feature which will be filling in for a number of months starting after the holidays. But before the best takes a break, we wanted to do a bit of a retrospective. In this podcast conversation, Marina Zilbergertz, Dove Lerner, and Chaim Strauchler discuss themes and challenges and opportunities of harnessing worldly culture in the service of religious life. They also consider questions of instrumentalism, the decline of the liberal arts, and the recent New York Times expose on Hasidic yeshivot. Marina Zilbergertz is a scholar of Jewish literature and thought, and the author most recently of the yeshiva, and the rise of modern Hebrew literature. Dove Lerner serves as the rabbi of the Young Israel of Jamaica Estates and a member of the faculty at Yeshiva University's Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought. Chaim Strauchler is the rabbi of Congregation Rinat Yisrael in Teaneck and an associate editor here at Tradition, where he heads up the best column among lots of other things he does for us. And this is a chance for me to thank him for his vision in shepherding that department and providing us with so much thoughtful and thought-provoking content. So, Dove Marina, it's a pleasure to be able to join you on, on this podcast. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining me as we speak about the best um, that has been thought and spoken and the best, the tradition project. So okay. let me ask you both, um, tell me what you think about how uh, the best is doing in terms of not just the tradition project, but in terms of our community more generally. How is it that we as a community are thinking and living the best that has been thought and spoken and bringing that into our community of Torah observance and Torah learning uh, when it comes to driving forward our community's values uh, into the future? One of the, I guess I'll start by saying that one of the special things about the best, and this is what everybody, everybody has been saying, is that it's so broad. And in a sense, like what's so great about something being so broad, but I want to put my finger on something more than that. The thing about it is not that 
just not just that it's broad, but that it's non, um, it's what I call non-instrumental. And um, in a sense, the it, it is very much in the spirit of a kind of Torah Lishma, if we if we may kind of just jump into it. Like one of the um, one of the huge contributions that um, Jewish culture and Torah and Jewish tradition gave the world um, is this, what I call the principle of non-instrumentality. And, and, and we all know what that means with regards to Shabbat and Shemitah, the non-instrumentality of persons and of labor and so on. But there's also something to say about the non-instrumentality of intellectual culture and intellectual capital. And that idea is really summarized by this concept of Torah Lishma, the idea that you learn Torah in a broader sense, not for making a psaq, not for anything, not to be holier necessarily, but just for the Torah itself. And taking that more broadly, um, the idea of the best is taking everything that inspires us, everything in which we can find wisdom um, and distilling the little pieces of Torah in it uh, for us. And so I think that is a very, uh, a very valuable endeavor. Um, yeah, to pick up on uh, Marina's observation, uh, I wholeheartedly embrace uh, that vision um, in terms of how I sense it running on the ground uh, to some degree, I feel like this outlook, which may be an old, even ancient outlook in Jewish terms, is still relatively new uh, in historical context. Since the emancipation of the Jews of Europe in the 18th century, we are still kind of coming to terms with the possibility of gleaning what is best. Uh, the very notion that there's anything, never mind best, but anything good beyond the Jewish community is something. Uh, that we as traditional Jews have been coming to terms with for two, 300 years. Um, so I find that the kind of project like the best, the kind of outlook the Marina describes uh, has a kind of mass interest in it. Uh, that interest may be an interest in censure, it may be an interest in embrace, but it, it's seen as still uh, revolutionary. So in, in shul, uh, rabbis quoting from broader literature sometimes elicits laughs because it seems uh, dissonant to see a religious figure citing from something outside of the Jewish sphere. Uh, sometimes it elicits applause. Um, but in my uh, in my hopes, as Marina says, my my sense is it, it shouldn't just elicit applause or uh, shock, uh, but a sense of integrity. Uh, in each of the listener, because at the end of the day, uh, at least in the modern Orthodox context, most of us are engaging wider culture in one way or other. And if there is a way for, uh, whether it's in synagogues or schools or college uh, or around a Shabbat table, there's a way to integrate what we're doing with our lives, with our spiritual aspiration. I think that just deepens our capacity for not only consuming the best, but living uh, our best lives uh, in a non-compartmentalized way. I think that it's interesting to return to Matthew Arnold's essay uh, about the best that has been thought and spoken. And to think about the, the threat of uh, a material world that in his day 
was really about the Industrial Revolution and its many effects on society, but it has almost not just blossomed, almost exploded in our own day when it comes to so many aspects of the lives that we lead and the lives that our children lead when it comes to the, the information revolution and the degree to which the mind is being somewhat contracted into so much smaller pieces of information and being constantly being inundated with these, these pieces of information. And might we say that the possibility of really appreciating the best and giving the best the time that it needs to really consume the best in that way. Are, are we being forced onto our back foot in, in some respects? Do, do, are we retreating or need to retreat in order to somehow, um, are, are, we, are we being heard? Or, or is anyone paying attention to this idea of the best that has been thought and spoken when there's just this constant torrent of just, and I also say it, narishkeits, that we and everyone around us is the only exposed to constantly. Um, if I may, um, this idea of materialism that you know is such an integral part of our culture, at the basis of this idea, and I'm back to the issue that I'm interested about, is this idea of um, what is useful, utility, instrumentalizing, because that's what material culture does. It assigns value to things based on how valuable, how important they are, how much money they make. And what drives our material culture is all of these things. And by giving a platform and a place to talk about ideas, to expand our cultural horizons, um, to talk about you know, music and all, and all kinds of sort of random, in, in a way, a, a random amalgam of things that each has meaning to individuals, that in itself, um, without some kind of goal or some kind of didactic outcome that you know, we wanted to say at the end, some kind of a priori conclusion that we wanna make uh, about it, that in itself is an antidote, I would say, to the materialism of our culture. It's, part and parcel with this project of let's just talk about what interests us without uh, necessarily um, and a set outcome. Yeah, uh, and I would, I, I'd concur that in the spirit of your question, we are all being bombarded all the time. Uh, I mean, what I would kind of add, my instinct is that even if we were rid of what you call the nourishkeit, uh, the risk of bombardment doesn't really uh, contract. They're, what we call the best, in terms of if I were forming the best canon or uh, drawing on the uh, essays produced by the best, it's still being bombarded by a torrent of material. Uh, so you, you reduce the pile from a near infinity to a slightly lower near infinity. But I, I don't think uh, there's a way to really transcend this torrent um, which means that the task we have is not just to curate, uh, as your mission statement says, the best material, but really to provide the best lens. Um, because if we produce, if we offer people the best lens uh, to consume what they're consuming anyway, um, we kind of sidestep the problem of the torrent because you're putting a lens on whatever you consume. Um, I've also found that to be more productive generally. Uh, people tend to bristle at being offered a canon or being told what's worth their time and what isn't worth their time. 
Um, but being told that whatever you do with your time, uh, putting the best lens on it for living productively is something we can all do and you get to choose what you apply it to. Uh, and I find that that uh, tends to be uh, not only more effective uh, top down, but also more effective for everyone. So how would you describe that lens? In other words, what, what, how is, um, is one to consume or to make use of whatever they choose in the best way? I mean, it's an interesting question. I remember I was, uh, I was giving a, uh, a talk or a share when I was uh, an assistant rabbi in Chicago at one point, uh, and there was a, there still is a uh, YU Kolel in the neighborhood, and I, I quoted some movie or something in the middle, and I said something about it, uh, and one of the Kolel members at the time came up to me afterwards and said, I don't understand why you feel the need uh, to quote movies, um, you know, even if you, you feel, you know, it's worthwhile, they were watching movies anyway. Why don't you speak more about just hardcore Torah? Uh, and, you know, if you're surrounded by people who don't know anything about movies, maybe introduce it. Uh, and the notion that, well, yes, they're doing it anyway, but it's not, I'm not just promoting movies for the sake of movies. Uh, I'm trying to give uh, a lens on how what we consume shouldn't just occupy our brain cells to let us uh, breathe. Uh, but it, we should breathe it into our spirit. What we're watching, we should let it shape how we uh, understand other human beings. Um, and I mean, Rabbi Sachs, uh, who in many ways I think triggered this project, um, was, a, was an expert uh, at this, at taking anything, whether it was a cartoon uh, or a film uh, or a poem or a song, and saying, if you just let it touch you, uh, and let it move you, um, you can be a better human being. Um, and in terms of what that lens looks like, uh, I don't know whether it's worthwhile to draw on the thought of a figure like Martha Nussbaum, uh, who thinks that every uh, judge in the United States ought to read novels uh, proactively, not just because it helps relieve the strain on the brain, because it makes them better judges. Uh, in her book, Poetic Justice, she makes its claim that the more we understand human beings, the better we can serve human beings. And whether it's song, literature, film, um, we get a sense of how human beings work. Uh, and if we're just watching something to get a sense of how the world works, how people work, we can better serve those people's needs. And that's the lens. How can I, and I don't want to, to push against uh, Marina's instrumentalization uh, notion, but I, I think at some level we can instrumentalize what we're consuming uh, in a way that turns it away from kind of narcissism. It's not just about me consuming my nutrition, what's good for me. But how do I instrumentalize what I'm consuming to make me a better agent uh, of ethics uh, in the world? And if we have that lens, when I'm watching, um, whether it's uh, the new Lord of the Rings or whether I'm uh, listening to the latest album release or listening to a podcast or watching sport, uh, am I just appreciating the pixels on the screen to kind of keep me busy? Or am I thinking about what draws the people into what I'm watching and how the plot seems to pull on my heartstrings. And if it pulls me and it pulls people like me, how can I speak to that need next time I'm near a person in need? And it, to instrumentalize it is really, uh, for me, the best lens one can apply to these things uh, in a moral context. But of course we need to breathe and relax occasionally as well, but that's my sense. 
So, so let me let me ask you about your question. So first of all, here the instrumentality is not the goal. It's the goal is some kind of. Uh, would you say the goal is some kind of moral um, target uh, to be a better person? Yeah. It, interesting. If I think about the sum total of the the pieces, the articles that appeared in tradition, the best sum maybe, but there are others that I struggle to. You know, to see how, you know, let's say recently there was an amazing uh, piece about the, the band Wolfpack <laughs> that I like. And I was, oh, I can't believe somebody else, you know, here <laughs> likes it as well. But, you know, and I, I read it so much pleasure and it's about art and uh, beauty, aesthetics and so on. But uh, I'm not sure about <laughs> if everything can, if everything has to be just streamlined into, okay, the, the, right, this ethical didacticism. Um, and, and to sort of backtrack, I also wanted want to ask you about you know the lens. Would you would you agree that we can talk about the lens or possibly envision this lens in which with which we sift the narshkite as um, we are going for things that bring us meaning, truth, beauty, and in some total we're sifting Torah out of all of these different aspects of Torah out of all of these random things. It doesn't only have to touch on ethics. There's other valuable uh, things in the world. I mean, yeah, interesting. When you say there are things beyond ethics that are valuable, you mean- Aesthetics. Right, valuable in the sense that it helps us live healthier or that it feeds our condition. What do you mean? They just exist in, the, in themselves and there's some things are not, you know, not just, not everything is, um, you know, like, again, this, the perfect example is aesthetics, right? Some things are just beautiful. It doesn't necessarily make us better people to consume it. Some, some have some, you know, philosophers have made that argument, but it, it does touch on some part of our human condition. The fact that we as humans are the only <laughs> creatures here that can appreciate it. It touches, it's a humanist thing, but it's not necessarily an ethical thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, to some degree, I think that's, uh, to be somewhat anachronistic, very Maimonidean, that at the end of the day, uh, ethics is important and helpful, and it's a dimension of human life. But at the core, at just to exist uh, is the key uh, and to exist most deeply is to be most in touch with uh, what he would call the mind of God or the active intellect or what we might call uh, the cosmos or God. Um, and I, I, to, to make this interesting, I guess uh, at this point in my life or at this point in this day, uh, my instinct uh, is to kind of move away from that um, and say that I would rather instrumentalize those moments of beauty to redirect my life away from myself. Um, and aesthetics can be deeply moving and I can feel deeply human and I can, you might even metaphorize it, so I can feel the presence of God. Uh, but if I want to uh, live meaningfully and, and feel instructed or commanded, I want to take that moment of deep feeling and direct it into something productive for another. Um, and I think that that's to some degree uh, how I understand tradition calling to me. Uh, and 
I think maybe a helpful way to make the distinction is uh, I would possibly draw a distinction between Torah uh, and Chokhmah, which uh, I think you've had, you've kind of melded to some sure, degree to sure. say that there's Torah everywhere. I can insist yes. it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my sense is, at least as I feel today, uh, and is that Torah is a confined body of particular values not necessarily laws or norms, but values. Um, And those values are self-contained. And what I can see in the rest of the world is not values, but facts. And those facts may be aesthetic facts. They may be scientific facts, psychological facts, biological, social facts. And I can harness those facts to bring the values that I inherit to life. So I can interrupt that. I want to add to the conversation by by noting that we exist within a specific historical moment here in the United States and that yesterday a a major article was published. We're we're speaking now on uh, September the 12th. Yesterday on September the 11th, the New York Times published a a very long article about Hasidic education in in New York State and New York City. And um, the, the article was very critical of the Hasidic community's uh, lack of education in secular realms like math and reading. And um, there's been a great deal of conversation uh, around the, this article within the Jewish world in the past 24 hours. Um, and in some respects, both the, 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 the work of tradition, but also we as people represent an approach to Judaism that, that stands apart from that presentation of Judaism that was captured in that uh, article in the New York Times. And in thinking about this line between Torah and Chachmah that uh, Rabbi Lerner just put forward, that just put forward, uh, I think that it's something for us to, to consider, not just how we do it, but also how we represent this bigger idea that whether we see within Chachmah value or not. I think that that really gets to the core question uh, about what it is that we do in bringing together these two things. Is there, in fact, more to that chokhmah than just facts? Are there values there too? And is there a, a point to exposing our Torah to those values? Do you want to jump in, Marina? Maybe I'll, I'll say maybe to go back to Maimonides and to go back to um, the approach to secular wisdom throughout the ages. I have to say it's not a fact that there, the distinction between Torah and really uh, existed in a consistent way throughout. Um, some of our greatest sages, they studied everything from astrology and Medicine, and they didn't. They they thought of some of these things very much uh, within the realm of Torah. Torah being the sum total of life and the sum total of everything. If we also include um, um, kabbalistic uh, wisdom and tradition and so on. Um, and for Rambam, every time that there was a separation between like this is Torah and this is like you know Greek philosophy that says that the world you know always existed, that's when you go astray. That's when you get in tr- that's when things get a little bit complicated and sort of veer off to a difficult path, trying to reconcile that there's Torah and then there's some other wisdom. 
Uh, so it, this tension between is Torah everything or is there Torah and then some other wisdoms, that's something that's been in a state of flux um, throughout history. Yeah. And today, um, especially, and I would say in the modern Orthodox community, there's a lot of pride, uh, I guess, placed on the fact that we are a community that studies Torah, Umadah, Torah, Torah, Chokhmah, this idea that we can embrace all of that. And that's wonderful on, on the one hand. On the other hand, it may be bringing in a superficial, possibly unnecessary distinction um, that doesn't have to be there. At the same time, when the view of Torah is so narrow <laughs> that it precludes even Torah, then we have a serious problem. Um, yeah, I mean, what I, I certainly appreciate that the distinction can be delimiting. Um, on the other hand, not making the distinction absolves all limits to some degree. How does one navigate, if everything is Torah, how does one navigate what one consumes and what one doesn't? And does that just become subjective or arbitrary? But there aren't easy answers. Correct. And I... I don't want to think that because I've said there is a line between what's Torah and what's Chochmah, it sounds easy, but I haven't defined the lanes for you. And if you were to tell me, okay, so tell me what is Torah, what are the values that you have delimited, that would take a very long time, even lifetimes perhaps, uh, to unfold. Um, and I think the notion uh, Rabbi Strassler suggests, oh, there may be not just facts, but values beyond in Chochmah, and I'd say the answer is unquestionably yes, of course there are values uh, beyond what we would call, or what I am calling, not to speak for anybody else, uh, Torah. Um, and the question is, are those values assimilable into uh, a traditional Jewish outlook as for me, uh, or are they values alien? And even if they're alien, that doesn't mean they're beyond the pale of my study. I just need to be conscientious about the values being foreign. Uh, and that doesn't mean there's not redemption to encountering them because those values are the product of other human cultures. And if I study those values, whether they're foreign, native or neutral, I get a better sense of how human beings work. But as long again, as I'm conscious of, what are the values that orient my life? And this is where I think maybe our views come together. I'm not suggesting that there is a kind of kosher trafe line between Torah and Chachmah. Just there is a consciousness shift between what is the way I orient my life in terms of my ethics. Uh, and that is derived, at least for me, from what I would call Torah. Uh, how I understand the world and understand myself, uh, that is uh, almost boundless. Uh, there are, of course, some strictures about what one uh, legally, uh, ethically should not consume or it's exploitative of someone else to consume or whatever else the case may be. There may be some lines there, but those are technical lines. Uh, but in terms of what should I encounter, the gamut is open. Uh, the question is, what should I absorb into my uh, norms and values? That's where I would kind of draw this line and say, I could read Greek philosophy all day long. Uh, and I'm not going to call that Torah because I'm not going to now 
direct my life around the norms that I've absorbed, but I have got a sense of how human beings think and process the world, how other people may process the world, and I can better communicate and serve them um, if I understand that. So, of course, there are values, um, but I, I would, to be reductive, I would treat those values as facts and say, now I have those values that I've encountered, I can better understand human beings and human culture so that I can use my values to better serve human beings uh, and culture. So Marina, you've written a book on uh, Velazhin and the, the beginning of Hebrew culture that very much was battling over these very questions themselves in terms of going back more than a hundred years. Would you want to just perhaps give us a little uh, insight into um, the historical tensions around some of these um, questions of bringing in from the outside and thinking from the inside outside? Absolutely. I mean, in the late 1800s, the Volozhin Yeshiva was the greatest uh, Jewish intellectual center of uh, Eastern Europe. It was a place for the brightest minds. It was kind of like the Jewish university. And um, and I was, you know, uh, the, headed at, at a very important uh, point by the Nazis. And the question of whether or not secular studies um, should be brought into the yeshiva at a time of rapid secularization and changes in the world and the rise of all of these movements and communism and populism and so on was brought to the fore. And it's a, it's a well-known fact that the Nazis uh, strongly, strongly uh, opposed it. Now, the Nazib was one of the most cultured people of all time, an avid reader of Hebrew literature. He knew everything. He knew absolutely everything. Uh, and so, what what does it mean? What did his um, what did his uh, rejection of bringing secular studies into yeshiva, into the yeshiva mean? Uh, surely, it did not mean that he doesn't. Um, in my opinion, it didn't mean that he didn't consider them Torah. But the thing is, um, when kind of like his concern was that when people buy into a framework um, run by different values and in different uh, structures, kind of like Dov, what you were saying, that in all of the secular wisdoms that are Torah, people will not be seeing the parts that are Torah, and they will just kind of like get plug in to a, almost like a brainwashing kind of system, almost kind of like when certain student, students go to the university today and the climate at the university is uh, very much ideological. There's a, a serious problem with uh, free speech and <laughs> speaking you know, uh, from experience. And so what ended up happening, however, in the Volozhin Yeshiva is that um, despite the fact that the Nazif uh, didn't allow for a, an official, uh, you know, official um, learning of secular studies, they made their way in, um, not necessarily in secret because he was aware of it, but sort of through like enrichment. So what you had was Yeshiva Bokor, some of the brilliant minds of the last um, past, you know, the uh, late 19th, uh, 18th century and um, early 19th were reading Talmud and they had their Hebrew literature and they were learning science and politics and then many 
famous figures went on to universities in Germany and Heidelberg and so on. And so in a sense, you know, he wasn't able to block, block it out, but what he, because he didn't really want to block it out because he actually appreciated the fact there's wisdom and Torah and secular studies. What the issue was, was to block out a kind of foreign um, control about how these wisdoms should be consumed. Um, today, I, I feel like we have different um, issues that are at stake, but certainly that was, that was the case. Um, and again, some of the people that came out of that milieu, they were the most educated, the most versed in secular culture that, as, that we have writers, philosophers, state leaders uh, in Israel. And, um, that, that very question about whether the, the Nitziv was um, interested in the reality or interested in the ideal is something that uh, is very much of the moment when it comes to how it is that we create our schools today. And, and in some respects, it's become even that much less possible to um, protect or to somehow segregate our, our, our ourselves and our children from um, general wisdom. Um, but at the same time, there are in some respects stronger things within our community that allows for school systems to become segregated as you can read on the pages of the New York Times. And th th there is a, and one you might say, an ongoing question that we, we face as as a people, which is, is the Torah meant to be something alone or is it meant to be something which does converse with, with others? So maybe I'll turn now to, to Rav Dov and ask about your teaching of students through Yeshiva University and what you're seeing in terms of, of their uh, ongoing interest in this endeavor that uh, uh, Marina describes as being the, the Nitziv's uh, real, real desire. I can't, can't, can't uh, psychoanalyze the Nitziv at this point, but um, what are you seeing am among the students at Yeshiva University in terms of, of their, um, their pursuit of this, this ideal of Torah Bechachma or Torah Mada? I mean, it's an interesting question. I guess uh, there's a sociological aspect to it uh, with shifts being detected in the community towards uh, vocational studies and away from what we call the humanities, um, which some see as tragic, others see as inevitable, some see as a sign of decline and looming disaster, but we all have our inclinations, pessimists or optimists. Um, my sense is things are shifting. I mean, just in terms of the number of English literature majors, it is in decline uh, when I was there as a student 10 years ago. Uh, but there is a, uh, an abiding interest uh, in the connection of what we're calling Torah and Chochmah, or if I'm going to give a plug to the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought, Torah and Western Thought, uh, which is, of course, a limit because you could involve Eastern Thought as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but that interest is abiding. Uh, and when there are talk about size Sims is on the rise and the humanities, no one's interested. It, it may be that in, the, in a silo, less people are interested in literature on its own. But my sense is uh, among students, the interest has not waned in the intersection of these uh, wisdoms. Uh, and I've got as many size Sims students interested in taking classes uh, as Yeshiva College or Stern students. 
uh, who are interested. Um, and I think the university is trying to pivot. I'm not here to psychoanalyze, never mind the Nitziv, even living rabbinic figures who organize the institution. Um, but at least the way I try to communicate the information is uh, that there is something of uh, deep and uh, persistent appeal uh, in what lies beyond uh, what we might call Torah. Um, and to some degree, making the division that I've made uh, is not just, for me, not delimiting, but in many ways, it opens up Chochmah. One of the things I, they had a panel on Torah Mada when I was a student at YU. They had a couple of students there talking about their experience. Uh, and I, I was just uh, in the audience. And I remember one student after another saying, oh, it's amazing uh, at YU because uh, I was in a math class and I, uh, it was exactly the same as something I was seeing in the Mishnah and I was doing a piece of literature and it evoked exactly what was happening in Tanakh. Uh, and the idea that I'm just looking, I'm kind of sifting Chochmah for echoes of what's in the Torah seems uh, or seemed to me at the time uh, to be somewhat of a waste of time. If I've already got access to that, why do I need to sift for kind of traces of it in other places for the maximal purpose of being proud that we've had an impact uh, as a cultural legacy elsewhere. What seems to me the strength of making this distinction is it recognizing there is something that is not native uh, to our intellectual tradition and that I can glean something from that. And it may be to instrumentalize it, but that doesn't mean to exploit it. Uh, it means to harness it uh, so that I can, again, serve or engage or encounter uh, people who are native to foreign cultures. Uh, and that distinction, I think, still thrives uh, among the students. I'm teaching a course uh, this semester that actually deals with many of these questions, the transition into modernity for Jews out of the ghetto confronting uh, the forces of enlightenment and romanticism, uh, the blend of hatreds uh, and the risk of embracing Europe for these Jews um, and trying to resolve these questions of what's foreign, what's native, what's natural, what is uh, a contingency, what is authentically Jewish um, and what was forced on us by uh, the outside is a complicated question we're still weaving through, which is why I think this project is helpful and hopefully this conversation uh, is as well. Absolutely. The, uh, we're in not just um, on September the 12th, um, 2022, uh, we're also in the month of Elul. And uh, as we are in the month of Elul, we're very much thinking about uh, the Jewish values of, of tshuva and how it is that we live tshuva. And uh, one of the questions of instrumentality around the study of uh, secular wisdom relates in some respects to a vision of the human person. You might say uh, a, a certain uh, humanism and for us, religious humanism. And um, the, the nature of the human being, I think is something which is evolving within modernity, the sense of um, somehow being pre-selected, almost being genetically predetermined in some way. And classic religious humanism is very much against such a, a proposition in that classic humanism would see human beings as, as developing, growing, of somehow changing in some significant way. And as we are uh, very much in the midst of, of the month of Elul to be thinking about the need for an elixir, the need for something to not just cure us and make us better from what ails us, 
but also will allow us to, to grow and to become what we are meant to be. I think it's something also to be thinking about, about how we learn Torah, but also how it is that we, we learn uh, Mada as well. What would you reflect upon the messages you get for, for the month of Elul from whether it be a single piece or just the idea of, of secular wisdom? Um, well, this really, this question of uh, uh, that we're in Elul and Shuvah really brings me to ask you, um, um, Rabbi Strafler, about uh, your piece on the little prince. Uh, when you first uh, asked me to write, that was the very first thing I wanted to write about. And then I, for some reason, I just, when I think of the best, I just wrote about the little prince and I saw you did as well. And in addition to like our discussion before, if somebody asked me what, what my favorite books are, just happens to be that I would say it's, you know, the Bible and the little prince. And it's just like strange combination. And I wanted to ask you about what, what the little prince means to you. And is it not a story of Chuba? <laughs> I think it's a story about a lot of things. I think Chuba is certainly a piece of that. And it's a story about friendship. It's a story about um, non-materiality in some way, about being able to get past um, the, the obsessions that um, modern life or which life generally will, will, will lock a person into and to be able to, uh, to see the parts of ourselves that get beyond the day-to-day. And that's something that I think is very much of Elul. Um, the idea I, in my piece, I talk about the fox and, and um, the taming of the fox and how it is that we, we come to uh, learn about one another and, and to relate to one another, to build the links between one another that really make life truly valuable on so many levels. And I think that, I, I'm not sure if I did this explicitly in the piece, but I connected this a little bit to a Kaddish Baruch Hu as well, that there's a, an element in which we become Hashem's friends through the habits that we form during the month of Elul, during the Aserah Simei Tshuvah. And, and there's a great deal of, uh, of wisdom that that's, I'm able to appreciate more within Torah and Mitzvot. It's not just the way that uh, Rabbi Lerner, that Dova spoke about, you know, everything's uh, in Torah, and that, uh, but that, that you can appreciate Torah through the, uh, of the lens of a, of a beautiful and amazing work of art, of, of literature, and come to appreciate it that much more deeply. And so uh, that's a piece of what inspired me about uh, The Little Prince. And um, in so many respects, the, the goal of the project is not to uh, encapsulate the entire work, but really just to, to point to one another and say, there's something here. And, you know, Zeal Gamor, go and learn for yourself. Go and see that that's something that I find really precious can be something that'll be precious for you as well. So that that was my, my thinking about uh, The Little Prince. Uh, Marina, I'm sure that I did not encompass all that you could have read about The Little Prince. I want to give you a chance to also uh, talk about what the work meant to, to you. I mean, that was beautiful. Uh, and I only recently started seeing it through the lens of Chuba now that you brought this up. But, you know... I see so, you know, so much truth to it in the sense that it's a story of this lost soul, this lost and disillusioned individual who is on this search for meaning and he's, you know, crashing on plane. I'm also a fan of uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's other sports as well. And he attempts from 
to build a system, some kind of, to find some kind of truth out of the phenomenology of the heart, of the phenomenology of his own experience. And what he comes up with, the ideas that he comes up with is a, is a Torah of relationships and relationality. Um, it's a kind of Torah in the sense, it's a kind of a um, teaching of the holiness of relating uh, to others. And that, that is fascinating that you know, a person just like with, from first principles out of his heart and his experience can come up with that. Um, and you know, the story of the, the little prince is he lost something and he has to be kind of, he's sent down to earth, like the neshama is sent down to earth to go through all these sufferings and a process of tikkun. And at the end, he has to die. And the question is, does he actually die or does he not die? And it's like the whole question of Olamaba and does and he believes that he has made his tikkun and he's coming back uh, cleansed and and uh, his neshama is now kind of like ready to um, to return to the place that he couldn't appreciate um, from the start. So that that is sort of what I see in relation to Chodesh uh, and Shuba. But I really really appreciate your piece and I can talk forever. But I want to hear about. Um, from uh, Rabbi Lerner, so. Oh, well, thank you. This, if you would, if you would uh, t- take us into the Olam Haba. Ha- I want to go to hell. I want to ask you about hell. From Olam Haba, straight, straight to oh, hell. Oh, even better, <laughs> that's right. That's fine. Because Dove wrote on Paradise Lost for us. Yeah. And so that's that's what Marina is referencing. Just to be clear. Absolutely. Right, viewers and listeners. <laughs> Oh, I thought it was a reference to where I'm going. Um, (laughs) I was going to say, I'll give you a retrospective after. Um, You you write about hell, you teach about hell, Milton's Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno, Shakespeare missing a few, you know, Goethe's Faust and, uh, you know, Marlowe's Dr. Faust. There's a bunch of really important pieces about hell. And um, what I wanted to ask you about is why, what, first of all, what, what do you think about hell? And second of all, why is hell all the place where all the fun is and where the moral voice comes from in all of these pieces? <laughs> why and is hell so here, great? We are, we are going to need to end the podcast at a certain point. So <laughs> please, a regular hot hell. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's a fabulous question. I actually did a, a year long series at the shul as well on the Jewish view of the afterlife. Uh, and my conclusion was, we know nothing. Uh, so I, uh, there is much that has been said. Um, most of it, uh, forgive me to return to the instrumentalization, seems to be uh, for the instrumental purpose of living a better life on earth. Uh, but there is something about the terror of uh, what may be worse than the pain that we experience here, if that's possible that uh, entices people, the, the uh, horror of what might lay in wait, the sense there may be eternal justice uh, in store. These questions, uh, I assume, uh, generate uh, a lot of this uh, interest. Um, in terms of what would I use in the context of Elul and how we might uh, 
consider all of firstly thank you for your readings of the little prince i have to confess as a growing up in london i didn't read the little prince we had the real royalty uh, and we're now speaking in the wake of the passing uh, of the queen elizabeth so we weren't allowed to read about fake royalty uh, so thank you for introducing me to that text um i'm uh, i'm teaching uh, jean-jacques rousseau's first discourse tomorrow if today's monday which i think it is um, and the question he responds to in that essay is, has the improvement in the sciences and arts uh, improved our morals? Has it made us better people? Um, and I guess that's the question uh, to ask uh, for me as well in the context, not necessarily to come back to this, of what should I be consuming as uh, a citizen of the world? What is the wisdom that I should put on my bedside table? Um, but how should I consume it? What is the lens that I can apply? And is it making me better? Uh, and Rousseau's observation is that actually uh, the improvement in the science and arts has had an inverse effect. That Everybody thinks they've become smarter, but they've actually become worse mm -hmm. as people. People have become duplicitous. They speak in artificial terms. They can cite uh, without recognizing uh, the insight that it summons uh, from us as people. And wouldn't it be better if we were all honest? And he says, you know, uh, it was better back in the day when we didn't know enough, but at least we knew that we didn't know. So we were honest about it. So uh, at this time of year, um, while I disagree with him that I think we'd be better off without the arts, uh, I would uh, heed the call that he offers that we need to attend to the question of, what impact is what I'm consuming having on me as a moral agent? Um, and is it making me better or worse? Uh, and can I adjudicate not just what I'm consuming, but how I am uh, consuming? And that doesn't mean I need to stop watching sport, uh, but maybe I can add a layer to how I consume sport or how I watch uh, movies uh, in the month uh, and days ahead. Uh, and maybe if we do that, we can all avoid the pitfalls uh, of uh, of hell and elsewhere. Uh, so that's my hope to come back to that. Um, you, you had a, a thought, Marina? About, you know, if we um, start thinking about uh, cons our consumption of culture and uh, and other things in that way, does it make us better or worse? What ends up happening historically? We have tried this, certainly uh, communism has tried this, to um, channel, to try to, and before that, you know, to make the things that we consume didactic and to make them like, well, if we can, you know, when the novel, the rise of the novel, Many, many intellectuals, religious figures were concerned that it's going to, because it's such free for all, it's going to corrupt right, the people. And so there's this idea, let's make novels moral, let's, let's uh, kind of repress um, literature and fiction and what we consume and, tar and sort of channel it in a certain way. And then what ends up happening is that that ends up having the opposite, the reverse effect instead of it uh, really making people better, it actually might have make them worse in, in a different way. And so it's a very uh, sensitive dialectic between the freedom of art, between its non-instrumentality and the ability for art to actually inspire, to create something better and to improve, which it may or may not. But if you 
force it, it definitely won't. <laughs> Marina, if, if I may, I think there's a crucial distinction between the individual and the public when it comes to this issue that you're bringing up. And that it, it's one thing for the society as a whole to tell each individual what you can and can't consume. But I think it's something that throughout history is inevitable. You can only consume so much as an individual. And if as an individual, you are selective in what it is that you consume, both when it comes to physically, but also morally and culturally, this is something that we inevitably do. And again, I'm, I'm going to suggest that perhaps in, in, in Rabbi Lerner's suggestion about how it is that we consume uh, culture today, that, that the suggestion is not that we censor, but rather that we select. And I think that, that that element of selecting for each of us as individuals and to be thoughtful about how we select and what we select, I think that that's very different than, than describing it as being a form of control. Right, and I think I'd add that maybe, maybe I'm not being clear, um, which I often am not, is that I, I would not suggest making the material more didactic and kind of go George Eliot and turn everything into philosophy. I would uh, suggest the material should be as free as it can, uh, but the consumption should be self-didactic, the way that I consume everything, and there should be no limits on what I consume. Mm should be through the lens of I'm experiencing this, but I don't want to walk away like I just got a buzz from uh, like a narcotic. I want to walk away feeling like this has changed me uh, for better or worse. And if it's made me worse, I can then self-censor about what I'm consuming. So if somebody comes to me in shul and says, I love Game of Thrones, oh, and I get this all the time. I can't believe I just told the rabbi I watched Game of Thrones. So you should feel free to watch whatever uh, you enjoy. And hopefully, maybe I can inspire you to consume what you are consuming anyway through the lens of how does this shape me? Uh, and maybe you'll make a decision about maybe I shouldn't consume this because it's not making me better. Or maybe it is making me better, in which case I can redeem through Chaim Potok's lens what might be seen as uh, nakedness to nudity and a sensitivity to vulnerability and to uh, what it means to be human. And as long as I can pivot at least from my perspective, I can pivot how people are consuming. I don't mind particularly what they're consuming. So it's not really censorship. It's more about uh, putting a, just a lens. Uh, and I wish I had a better term for that. Uh, it's but, hard to trust oneself in knowing what makes us better. That's a tricky thing. But yeah, point well taken. So Rabbi Seinu, thank you. This was a great conversation. And continue to do your wonderful work in the year ahead. It should be a Shanat, Sovamatuka, a year of much sweetness in Torah, much sweetness in Chachmah, a much year of much sweetness in everything. Amen. And a pleasure to join Amen. you and uh, to speak with you. Both Thank you.